I'm so pleased to have Frank Joostra join me. I mean, I've known Frank for a lot of years, and it's been fascinating to see him carve out a brilliant career in the mining industry, but other things. Uh, you know, he's the winner of the Order of Canada. He's the head of the Joostra Foundation. Uh, as I say, if I went through his entire resume, I'd have to say, thanks for the interview, Frank, and go. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Frank, I got to just say, I mean, uh, big respect, uh, what you've been able to do and what you've done for the community too. So I'll leave it at that, but it's, it's been fascinating to watch and, and, a, and a pleasure to watch. Thank you. But lately your interests have been, uh, you know, one that certainly dovetails with what's important to uh, so many people, uh, Canadians, impacting so many Canadians. And you sort of, I'm going to simplify it and say, man, look at all this paper money that's getting created everywhere you look at every turn. And you've shown, you know, you've written about this, you've had articles published about this. Give us a little bit about that backdrop. Yeah, so as you might remember, I've been writing about this topic for 20 years, actually over 20 years now. started writing about this in 2001, about the change that I was seeing at the time, the change in attitude by, uh, through fiscal policy, through monetary policy, and then comparing those changes, that pattern to history and and seeing a very troubling pattern. And, uh, and I've been writing about it ever since. I wrote about it through the 2008 crisis and, and beyond. And what what has happened is very, uh, it's, it's not unusual when you look at it through a historical perspective that we're doing, we're making the exact same mistakes that every other great power has done throughout history and, and, and the rise and fall of great powers, the rise and fall of currencies, the rise and fall of uh, powerful economies, they all make the same mistakes. And so what are those mistakes? The mistakes were obviously uh, fiscal irresponsibility, followed by monetary irresponsibility, and then followed by speculation and excess debt. All those things kind of follow each other, and then you get a reset. Something happens, and you have to reset the entire system. And this is where I think we're at today. We're at a very pivotal moment in time where I see an imminent reset of the entire global monetary system because it's unsustainable. The debt is unsustainable. The money printing is unsustainable. The speculation is unsustainable. And it all has to come to an end. It has to resolve itself. And so it's a very dangerous and fragile time. It's global. It's not just one country. It's, it's, it seems to be endemic throughout the Western world, at least, you know, the, the Western powers. Um, and there's a shift coming. You know, there's that old line by Herb Stein that says, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And that's what you're describing. Well, yeah, and it yeah. seems like it just keeps escalating. Yeah, you know what I mean? As Hemingway said, bankruptcy happens gradually and then suddenly. And I think we're at that moment in time where some pivotal event will take place that will trigger something catastrophic. And, you know, if you think back to 2008, we thought we understood the system. Everybody thought they understood the system until we didn't. And the problem with black swan events is you don't see them coming until the black feathers start flying. And that's really where I think we're at. You know, we're in a very fragile geopolitical setting. We're in a very fragile global financial uh, setting. And something has to give. Something's going to break. It's unsustainable. So I think that, you know, we have to be prepared for that. 
Well, and uh, we already had the example of the UK pension system in September. You know, uh, we've got, I mean, the ongoing drama in Japan where they're just trying desperately to keep the interest rates down by buying and that bond market seems broken to me. Uh, the amount of losses in the bond market, as you're alluding to, are just f- flabbergasting. And I, I know in, uh, you know, uh, one of the recent articles you wrote talking about why doesn't the central bank own some gold? Well, we've seen that break there. I mean, I, I think about the response there that you alluded to, the, you know, David Dodge says, oh, we can just own euro bonds. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know, that was about, uh, I have to say something because they sold, we're talking about the Bank of Canada here specifically, which is practically the only central bank in the world that doesn't own gold. And they sold their gold position at rock bottom prices in the early 2000s. And as you said, David Dodge's excuse was, well, you know, there's a cost of holding gold. We can invest in, uh, in bonds and at least get a return. Uh, and gold does nothing. It's a sort of an ancient relic. And he couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, gold has gone up sixfold since they sold their gold position. Bond prices have returned very little over the last 20 years. So he couldn't have been more wrong. And here we are as a uh, a, 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 a very advanced economy, and we have zero gold holdings in our central bank. Uh, and I think that that is a very dangerous position. Um, and that's just one of the many mistakes that have been made by central bankers over the years. Well, no, but it's a great point. I mean, their track record is very, uh, you know, like I'd be broke if I was them. I mean, I, you know, because it, it, there were serious mistakes. I mean, I can't believe they didn't watch what the their monetary policy didn't observe the fiscal policy, yeah. you know, that was going on during the pandemic. And, and, so you, know, and, you, and you mentioned Japan. Japan is out of control. I mean, they're buying every, the central bank is buying every asset class except sushi. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it, and it has to, they, it's un, what they're doing is unsustainable. And at some point it will give. And well, and that's the frightening part. I fr- I'm I'm worried for individuals, you know, uh, worried for the system, as you say. And that seems to be, you know, are we waiting for a break in the system? But as I say, we and it's not something that uh, we started on this show. We talked that it would always start in emerging markets, which obviously it has, you know. But no, people should understand we're into Europe now. We're into Japan now. You know, the sixth largest uh, UK is, I think, the sixth to eighth largest, depending how you're measuring economy yeah. in the world. Japan, third, third, uh, third or fourth. Wow. Uh, and that's what worries me. It worries me for individuals in that way. Um, let me come back to, you know, and again, uh, the kinds of things that you would like them to be looking at, too, because it also applies to us as individuals. But why should they own gold? Why should the central bank have a piece of gold? Because it's the one of the only assets that's well, it's the only monetary asset that can't be printed. It's as simple as that. Yep. The world is hooked on QE. You know, printing money is the solution and has been the solution to everything. Uh, it's the automatic reflex of every crisis now. And you saw it recently. Well, you saw it through the pandemic. You saw it through the UK bond crisis, the pension uh, fund crisis. Anytime there's a crisis, the automatic reflex is QE. So print, print more money. We can't print gold. That's number one. Number two, if you're not following this trend, this is about probably the most important trend to follow right now. Physical gold for the last 12 years has been moving from west to east in huge quantities. And now it's accelerating. Every central bank in the world that's not a western central bank is buying gold and the physical stuff is moving east. Since 1995, 47,000 tons 
has physically moved from Western vaults to Eastern vaults. And now that purchasing of gold is accelerating. Something is afoot. And what my guess is, is that the world is preparing for a global monetary system reset, which will have to have some hard asset backing. And the conversations that are now taking place are in the open. So you're, now you have the BRICS countries talking openly about creating an SDR type currency basket structure that doesn't involve Western currencies um, for settlement purposes. You've got, you know, Russia and China all making noises about the same thing. And now you're seeing the global south joining those conversations. And I could give you chapter and verse of all the individual conversations that are taking place, whether it's the golden ruble or whether it's the Saudis now talking about selling oil outside the petrodollar system, which created a floor for the dollar, for the US dollar, and then allowed it to remain the supreme currency. So I think that a change is imminent. And when I say imminent, it could be, I don't know, months or years, but we're about to see a change. And that will challenge the supremacy of fiat currencies, especially the U.S. dollar. And I think that that when that happens, I think, well, I think, first of all, that the U.S. will not like it. And I think it will fight it using whatever means possible. But I think it's very hard to fight it when 80 percent of the world's population wants a change. They want to see mm -hmm. this change. And if you think throughout history, every paper currency that was ever created was backed by gold initially. Obviously, countries lose their discipline over time. Then they take they come off the gold backing as the U.S. did in 1971. But they have to, for the for the sake of credibility, for that new currency, whatever it looks like, it could be a basket of currencies, it could be a single currency, has to have gold backing because you can't print the stuff. And it's the only it's the only non-paper asset that every central bank, except for Canada, in the world owns. So it's to me, it's 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 the natural go-to asset to create a new currency. It seems to be part of that bigger trend that we've been talking about in money talks. I, I say to people, close your eyes. I'll give you a pile of paper, paper dollars, or I'll give you gold, oil, wheat mm -hmm. kind of thing. Now, which do you want in the next five years? But your point's an important one for people to grasp is you're watching central banks, and we certainly know China's been doing this, uh, you know, make that, that shift. You know, I, I encourage individuals to make that shift, too, yeah. but has made that shift. And yet, as you say, the Western governments seem so reluctant. In fact, they're piling on. I mean, when, you know, the, the, because I think the system is already broken, you've got the pension system in the UK. They jump in with 60 to 65 billion pounds in that day. Yeah. You know, as you said, what's the solution? Oh, quickly print, create more money and, and try and paper it over. It's the only thing they know because uh, up until now it's worked. They're doubling down because it's the only solution that they have that's not a painful solution. So you can solve a lot of the world's problems with very painful solutions, but no politician or policymaker wants to, can get elected or appointed if they subject their population to painful solutions. And what are painful solutions? Austerity, bankruptcy, all these things yeah. just are not on the table. What can they do? Inflate the problems away. And that's what every country has ever done throughout history. When they run into these kind of problems, they inflate the problem away by debasing their currencies. And this is what we're faced with. And, and it will continue until something breaks because they don't know what else to do. They're in an inescapable trap. I've been saying this since 2008. There is no way out 
the, the math simply doesn't work. And now the arithmetic is finally catching up with the views that have taken place. This time it's different. We're exceptional. It can never happen here. All of these mantras that the West has relied on are coming home to roost now. And it, something has to break before they do something, before they realize that they have a real problem in their hands because it's easy to kick the can down the road. And that's exactly where we're at. Well, and so many things within that statement, but one is we're already seeing, I always say, who likes inflation? Government likes inflation. They pay back with dramatically reduced dollars, you know, that, that, that they can't pay any other way. But the other one we're seeing now, even in revenues at times, you know, Ontario just uh, presented a budget that was about $6 billion better. Why? Because inflation had pushed people's wages up, or especially when it comes to, uh, you know, sales taxes, revenue goes through the roof. Gasoline tax revenue has gone through the roof. But uh, I just want people to note that this is already happening. Yeah. You know, that they've already chosen how to get out of this or, you know, and again, they don't admit it, but I mean, they're not paying anything back. So they're going to pay it and, you know, really dramatically reduce buying power. Dollars. You know, when I, when I was a kid, I lived in Argentina. Um, I, I, I didn't come to Canada till I was nine. And if you know anything about history, um, you'll appreciate this. So my father invested in some businesses in Argentina. Um, and then he just he saw the writing on the wall what was taking place in Argentina during the 60s, and he decided to move his family out. He saw that things were going sideways. We left, we came to Canada. He tried to get out of his uh, business partnerships, got into a bit of a, a few lawsuits. By the time his money, by the time he resolved the lawsuits and he got his money, hyperinflation had set in, and every penny he got back, or I should say every peso he got back, was worthless, absolutely worthless, because hyperinflation had set in. And what we don't understand in this country is we believe it can never happen here. When it happens, it happens when you do certain things, when you behave in a certain way, hyperinflation eventually sets in. And I think that's where we're heading. Either hyperinflation or economic collapse or some combination of the boat of both. And what I what I think the problem is that we're living in truly unprecedented times. The, this situation is global. We have never seen it quite like this any time in history. So it's very difficult to predict an absolute outcome. All you can look at is a range of probabilities, and I can give you the range of probabilities. It's either going to be hyperinflation or a complete economic collapse or both. Um, and there's no way to reverse this trend, again, unless people are willing to take on a lot of pain, and politicians certainly don't have the backbone to create that, that environment. So for the individual, I look at this and, and uh, I mean, everyone's got different circumstances, of course, et cetera, but this is the backdrop of which they're trying to survive. You know, I mean, when they print money like this, I look at the UK as a great example of what you've just said about politicians not willing for the pain. So they institute climate change policies that said no fossil fuels. That was unrealistic in the time frame that they had set out. Okay, so now we're getting some of the implications in addition to exacerbated by Russian sanctions. And what's their response, though? Oh, we'll give you $700 billion in subsidies in Europe, which is inflationary, which is de devaluing the currency because it's just printed out. I mean, I know it's a cliche, but printed out of thin air is yeah. still the concept. Yeah, no, and, and that's what I believe, that every crisis, whether the crisis was a pandemic or the energy crisis or the UK pension fund crisis, will be met with QE. And whatever crisis hits America next, 
will be met with QE. And that's why I've been saying for a while that this, you know, these rate hikes that are taking place are, A, going to break something if they continue them because um, the world is so fragile and so indebted. Um, and some crisis will take place and then they'll reverse course, as they've always done. Rates will go back to zero and then they'll start printing again because that's the only thing they know how to do. <laughs> Okay, let's talk just for a second. Two things I want to get to, um, one, you know, both in your background, but the first is, what are the implications for the mining industry? You know, I mean... Well, I, I think uh, we're headed towards a, a hard asset environment. I think that the inflation that you and I talked about nine years ago, when, when you interviewed me on stage, and I said yeah. then, I said that all of this money printing will eventually come home to roost. And uh, what we saw in the early stages of that money printing was asset inflation. It's now converting into CPI inflation. And we're heading, now you're seeing it in the commodity prices. And I think especially now with the geopolitical state of the world, the way it's in, you know, China versus, you know, the U.S., you know, Russia versus the West, all of these things are going to exasperate inflation in the commodities. And commodities, we're... We're going to go through a commodity shock. We have very short in supply, whether it's food or metals or oil. They're controlled by certain countries. Usually it's the developing countries, and the developed countries are the ones that consume all this stuff. So I think that inflation is here to stay in the commodities. So I think for the miners, I think they're going to, it, over the next few years, you see an incredible run with, with the mining sector uh, because simply there has been very little in capital investment in, in both mining and oil over the last couple of decades. And I think that, that those shortages are going to start to show up and the supply chains are being disrupted. So I think that it's a, it's a very strong case for the miners. I don't know if you read that Credit Suisse report which talked about the Bretton Woods 3 concept, which yes. basically suggested that the world's heading towards a currency system that's backed by commodities because that's what really that's what's going to come. Now, I don't, I don't totally agree with that because I think to back currencies with a basket commodities is very complex. You have all sorts of issues with volatility and storage and and, and the cost of shipping and all. It's and it's it's I think it's much easier to back with gold, which every central bank of the world owns, as opposed to commodities. But I think. That the, that the idea was right, that we're heading towards a hard asset commodity environment. So I think I would be long the miners, you know, the, in a, you, I don't know if you watch some of these international miners like Rio Tinto and BHP and Valley, the dividend payouts are fantastic. And, you know, I don't have any, I personally don't have any ownership in American equities, but I do invest in really solid international companies with high dividend yields. And the miners are the best that I see, the best asset class for the moment. Uh, you know, uh, 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 as I say, I don't want to uh, push you into a corner, but what you're doing is fascinating to people. You know, you recognize the problem. You've been on top of the problem for 20 years. You've been writing about it, you know, articles recently, et cetera. And uh, see, that's my concern. What you're, what you're expressing is, my worry for people, they're going to be roadkill. Yeah. You know, they already are. I mean, from this system, I mean, people renewing their mortgages right now. There's some people who cannot afford that massive increase. In oh, yeah. Payments. I don't know if you saw, I saw a recent report that uh, the average American right now is paying 50% of their income just to service their mortgages. I mean, that's unheard of. Credit card debt has gone through the roof. It's at record highs. And again, unsustainable. Something's going to break. 
And uh, as I say, uh, that's why people, I love the, the articles you've been writing, but it's because people have to be aware that this is a challenge. They can't mirror the central bank. Yeah. And have, you know, gold has a place in portfolios. Uh, other, as you say, uh, quality miners, uh, you know, I mean, we know we need a lot more copper. We know we need a lot more lithium. Uh, you know, that list is a long one. Nickel, cobalt, uh, copper, uh, silver, um, all metals that are needed for this transformation to, you know, to electrify the world. And they're in short supply. There's not how many countries in the world are major nickel producers? Indonesia, the uh, DRC, Russia, you know, it's, they're not in easy places. And so I think that, you know, that, you know, in copper, there's been underinvestment in copper mines over the years. It, as you know, from discovery to production, it takes almost 20 years to put a mine into production. You know, and we haven't invested, the world hasn't invested enough in these mines over the last 20 years. There's a lot of catching up to do here. So I, I would look at the miners. I, uh, in all the base metals and in the strategic metals, I would look at energy companies, um, anything that the world needs um, in terms of commodities, commodities is, the pla- is the place to be. Um, but again, as I said earlier, it's, it's, we're living in unprecedented times. Um, your general investment philosophy should be, and this is really important, defensive. It's about protecting the wealth you already have as opposed to trying to make money. And I want to repeat that. Protect the wealth that you have as opposed to trying to make money. This is all about a defensive strategy at the time because I'm afraid we're going through a period of time where all asset classes are going to be under pressure, some more than others. So the trick is to be in those asset classes that will be under less pressure than others. Okay. So for instance, and I love this one, cryptocurrencies, an absolute no-no. I think they are, they were always to me a gambling asset that were then fueled by debt. So you've, uh, you've levered a gambling asset with debt, making it very toxic um, and it's like, I, I use the analogy of, it's like, it's like stuffing the Hindenburg into the Titanic when you lever crypto assets. So I've, I'm like, I've never touched this stuff. I am a firm believer that this is a, these are assets that are, that play off the greater fool theory. They're not real assets. You have to invest in real assets. So my general principle is invest in anything that can't be printed. If you can't, well, I'll- if you can't print it. It's a probably a good idea to own it. So currencies, bonds, you know, certain stocks that <laughs> you can print. Um, you know, stay away from things that can be printed. Hard assets, anything that's tangible and it's real, and that there's a, a growing demand for it globally, and that you can then look at whether the geopolitics affects the supply of those things. Those are the things you should look at. Well, that, that is wonderful advice, by the way, and I love and I want to re-emphasize what you just said. This is an era to be defensive. Yes. You know, and I, I just wish that would, uh, you know, I wish for everybody's well-being that people are hearing that message. And the great thing about a podcast, they can re-listen to that again and again, because I think that's the key component. People haven't made the adjustment from what was happening, say, 2020 
2021 into 2000. They haven't made that mental adjustment. Yeah. I'm still getting asked, is, is that down low enough yet? And I say, no, I don't want my Peloton, <laughs> you know, or Arc Innovation. And I'm not trying to jump all over yeah. it, but those are the opposite of what you've just uh, alluded to. And people have to have to get if, that. You know, you and I started in this business in the late, in the seventies. Okay. So we've seen a few markets and what I, there's a Kathy Wood arc and arc in every cycle, in every bubble environment, there's a Kathy Wood. And, you know, you can see the writing on the wall with people like that, that they're destined when the, the type of things that they say that this time is different, that, you know, we're, we're in a permanent plateau of, wealth by investing in this asset class you know that that you know that the writing's on the wall for for that bubble to burst and you know kathy wood was a perfect example we saw it through the dot-com era same type of language same you know these financial gurus come now you've seen it in crypto you, you saw it with the sam bankman freed i mean i can't believe that the intelligent investors like ontario teachers sequoia Tamasek, all these really the smartest guys in the room would make such a foolish mistake to invest billions of dollars into an asset class that is completely unregulated. And you know what? Where they have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, how dumb can people be? I just don't get it. But it's the it's a symptom of a bubble environment. You see it, you know, it, it happens over and over again every couple of decades. Absolutely. Hey, look, Frank, I kept you a little longer, but I got to tell you, you know how much, you do know how much I appreciate you finding time for Money Talks and Money Talks audience. No, no problem. Uh, great stuff as usual. Insights so valuable for people to hear. Thank you. 